0: Let me pray, and we'll jump into that passage. Father, thank you so much uh, for this passage. Thank you for uh, just the ways that it um, challenges us, uh, particularly it's going to challenge us today. Um, and uh, Lord, I pray that, uh, that your spirit would beat us in that, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned last week that uh, about a little more than a week ago now, I was uh, visiting over in the UK, and I was having dinner with a friend of mine in Edinburgh, Scotland, And this friend of mine, he spent some time um, as a sort of high-up figure in his uh, denomination. And so if you know about the Queen passing this year, do you guys know the Queen passed away? We've talked about this before. Uh, She actually passed away in Scotland, and so uh, they had uh, a first funeral for her uh, at St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, Scotland. So my friend, who was this at one point kind of high-up person in his denomination, was invited to come to the funeral. And so there's a whole hilarious story about him being at the funeral. But the thing I want to tell you about is after the funeral, he was also invited to a reception. And so he's at this reception, and there's all these really important people from Scotland there. And he's he's having a conversation probably with some important political figure. And a person walks up, uh, he said, on his left side kind of behind him. And so there's a person standing at his elbow waiting to speak to him. And he's like, I don't know anybody here. Who's waiting to talk to me? And he turns, and it's King Charles, the new king. And the king says to him, now, where have we met before? And my friend goes, we haven't met. <laughs> and Charles goes, no, 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 I'm sure that we've met before. Where have, we, where have we met? And my friend, who's a very kind of abrasive speaker, goes, we've not met before. <laughs> I mean, effectively, he's, he's just stood up to the king. Like, I love his boldness, because he's literally told the king of the United Kingdom that he's wrong. And he stood up to him. And, you know, there was a day not that long ago where if you did that, it was off with your head. And, uh, you know, if, it was, if that happened to me, by the way, uh, first of all, I'd be utterly tongue-tied. I wouldn't, be able to, I, I wouldn't know what to say. But secondly, if I did manage to say something to the king, I'd probably just make something up just to not embarrass him. So we're like, oh, yeah, it was that time that we were at the water park and we did that double tube down the slide together. <laughs> And then I would have showed him this picture here. Um, (laughs) He he doesn't look like he's having that much fun. So can you go to the next one? Uh, That picture. (laughs) I'm sorry. That was just ridiculous. Uh, I couldn't help myself. I definitely don't have the courage. You can take it away, by the way. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, I definitely don't have the courage or the boldness of my friend to tell the king that he was wrong. I, I don't have that kind of boldness. But as you saw in today's passage, it is about that kind of extraordinary boldness. Where well, Peter and John, they actually stand up to the top leaders in Jerusalem. And as we look at this passage, it actually suggests that all Christians should have a boldness and a courage when it comes to telling others about Jesus. There's this famous quote that's associated with the ancient church father, St. Francis of Assisi, and it goes like this. Uh, Here's what St. Francis said. He said, share the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Now, the implication with that is that the Christian gospel can be spread, it could be shared, without words. But the problem with that view is that this passage we're looking at today, and others like it, They actually explicitly say that the gospel is something that is only proclaimed. It's only verbalized. It's not something that you do without words. Uh, The Apostle Paul, he's, he's asking questions in Romans chapter 10, and he says this. He says, how then can they call on one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one in whom they've not heard? And then here's the kicker. How can they hear without someone preaching to them? In other words, through this Entire series so far in the book of Acts, we've been talking about the church flourishing and spreading. And what we're going to see here, and what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 10, is that the church cannot spread without the gospel message being spoken, being verbalized, and, and being done with boldness and courage to those who are not Christians. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you might actually find what I have to say uh, about sharing the gospel. You might actually find that offensive. After all, we live in a culture that says it's okay for someone to believe in something as long as you don't push that belief on someone else. As long as you don't share it and, and ask somebody else to believe what you believe, you can believe whatever you want. That's the culture we live in. But I hope at a minimum, you'll be able to see that the only way for someone to be authentically, thoroughly Christian is to share the gospel, is to actually verbalize the Christian message. That sharing the gospel with non-Christians is at the very heart of what it is to be an authentic Christian. And that's why I think this passage suggests that all Christians should have a boldness and a courage when it comes to telling others about Jesus. Now, let's just be honest, that doesn't mean that many, many Christians haven't done that badly. Uh, We have. Uh, Some Christians have done it very badly over the centuries. But that doesn't also mean that we shouldn't share the gospel today. And so non-Christians, let me, let me from this passage try and show you why it's authentically Christian to share the gospel. And then those of you who are Christians, let me show you that the very center of what it is to be a Christian is for you and I to courageously and boldly share the gospel with words. The words are necessary. And we'll see this under three headings. There's the name, the claim, and the fame. You see what I did there? Last week I alliterated, today I rhymed. (laughs) So first, the name. Now, the very first thing that we should notice about this passage is actually how often it mentions speaking. It starts out in verse 1, telling us that Peter and John were speaking to the crowd. And then it bookends the entire passage, go all the way down to verse 31, and it says that all the disciples were speaking boldly. And then in in the middle, in between those two statements, it makes eight more references to speaking. And so, by the way, when you're reading the Bible, if you ever want to know what a key theme is or what's really important in the passage that you're reading, look for, re- for repeated words or ideas. And so references to speaking, proclaiming, to hearing uh, are repeated 10 times in this passage. And we're going to come back to this theme of speaking quite a bit throughout the morning. But there's another word in here that's just as important that gets repeated six times, uh, and it's the word name. And all six times, the word name refers to the name of Jesus. And so in verse 7, the religious and political leaders, they ask Peter and John, uh, by which name did you heal this lame man? If you remember last week in chapter 3, they miraculously healed this, this guy, and this is just a continuation of that. And so they say, by which name, whose name did you do this? And then in verse 10, they tell them that the healing was done in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, why is this group of religious and political leaders, why are they so concerned with a name? Why does the name matter? Well, to answer that, uh, the answer to that actually comes into sharp focus when we consider just who these religious leaders are. It says back in verse 1 that it's the priests, and then it says the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees, and they're the ones who come up to Peter and John, and they're the ones who arrest them. And not only that, but verse 5, after they spend a night in jail, verse 5 it talks about, it says the rulers... The elders, the teachers of the law, Annas, the high priest, and his entourage, which includes a guy named Caiaphas, they're all there. Everyone has showed up. The entire uh, political, religious elite of the city of Jerusalem have all showed up to question these guys. And so are you catching the gravity of what's happening here? These are serious men with a lot of authority. I think I've told this story once before, but I once was arrested By mall security. Uh, It was, I think, the last day of school one year, and my mom took us to the mall. She picked us up from school, took us to the mall right before Father's Day. and She's like, look, I'm going to go and get something for your stepdad. Just don't get into trouble. Well, what were we going to do? You tell us not to get into trouble. Of course, we're going to get in trouble. So we're kind of walking through the mall, and my friend Joe is with me, and he looks over at my sister and I, And then all of a sudden he just starts running towards, you know those unmarked doors at the shopping mall? Do you you remember these when shopping malls were a thing? Uh, If you go back through there, it's just these corridors that go behind the stores where all the deliveries get made. And so Joe just darts into one of those and starts running down the corridor. So I look at my sister, she looks at me and we go chasing after Joe. So we're like running down one corridor, and then we pop out into the regular part of the mall. And then I see him dart across, and he runs into another corridor. And we're going through there, and we're you know it's like a you know the old Benny uh, Hill thing going on. And we're just running everywhere. And uh, all of a sudden, my sister and I were finally catching up to Joe, and then we hear these other footsteps behind us, much heavier footsteps. And it was the mall cop. And the mall cop, you know, with very authorita- authoritative voice, goes, "Stop!" And so we're good kids, so we just stopped dead in our tracks. We could have just kept, there's no way he would have caught us. Uh, but we stopped dead in our tracks, and he, he arrests us, and he takes us back to the mall security office. He says, you like these corridors, I'll take you down a corridor you won't like. And takes us to the, the mall security office, and then they start calling my mom over the loudspeaker in the whole mall telling her to come to the security office. And then he threatened to ban us from the mall if we ever did it again. Now, there's not a whole lot of authority there. It's the mall cop, and the worst case scenario is he could tell us not to come to the mall again, which how would he ever know? It's not like they had facial recognition software at Charlestown Mall in St. Charles, Illinois. And so that was, the, that, was the, that was the authority. There wasn't much authority there. But what's happening in our passage, I hope you're picking up, is that there is a significant authority that is called Peter and John in front of them. And so a conviction here with these guys is not being taken down a corridor they won't like, or being banned from the mall. Because actually the last time a group like this got together was when Jesus was arrested and put on trial and crucified. This is only months before this has happened. In fact, Annas and Caiaphas, both of them are mentioned here, they are central figures in Jesus' trial and crucifixion. They're the ones who actually bound Jesus and sent him off to Pilate to be crucified. And so bringing together this group of people is an extraordinary expression of authority. These are the authoritative rulers of the Jewish people. There is not one person more authoritative in this culture and in this place other than Caesar himself. And this is who they're standing in front of. And then what do they ask Peter and John, verse 7? By what power or what name did you do this? Did you do this healing? And so this is a question of authority. What they're really asking is, who gave you the authority to perform such a miracle in our temple? Who gave you the authority to speak to the crowds in our temple? And so it's the gravity of this sitting with you. Their response to this question is life or death. The last time a trial like this took place, the man was crucified. And look at how Peter responds. And it's worth reading the entire thing again, uh, now that we understand the gravity of the situation. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness, shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, okay, so far, so good. Not in trouble yet. Then know this. (laughs) And look closely at what Peter says. First, he says, he says, the name, the authority, is in verse 10, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, as I was reading that again this week, I had to do a double take when I was looking at it because he's so precise and so specific about the name. But remember, this is this the name that they say is also the one who they just had crucified. But let's look at the name, Jesus Christ. Now, you know Christ, it's not actually his last name. I think you know that. It's not like Smith. Uh, Christ is, it's a title. It's a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Messiah. And so the Messiah is the promise and hope for figure that all Jews were looking forward to coming. They were, they were longing for his coming. But it's also clear that not one person in this authoritative group that's called Peter and John together, not, not one of them thought that Jesus was the Messiah. And that's who he says the authority is. But then just to make sure they're not confusing him with anybody else who may have claimed to be Messiah, uh, he says of Nazareth, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, which is where Jesus grew up. And so he's that Jesus, the one who claimed to be Messiah, the one from Nazareth. That's who it is, the one that you rejected and killed. That's the Jesus, the Messiah from Nazareth. And what they say is he has become the authority. He's become the authority, so much so that verse 12, Peter says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And so not only is it Jesus' name, in Jesus' name that, that they're healing and speaking, he says that his name is the only, the only authority under heaven, full stop, Period. He's the authority. Oh, Peter, what have you done? Uh, this, this is certain death. These aren't mall cops. So that's the name. In other words, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he's the authority. The authoritative figure. And so Peter has now not only said the name, but he's, he's, he's made a claim that exclusive authority belongs to no other one than Jesus Christ. And our whole second point actually has to do with that claim, but before we get there, it's worth us just pausing to reflect on Peter's courage and boldness. Because notice his courage and boldness, it's not actually seen in his actions. It's seen in his speech. Because remember, this is a passage about speaking. The gospel only spreads through words being spoken. And actually... The word gospel literally means good news. It means good words, good message. That's that's what it means. It it is by nature a spoken thing. And so the question is, given the stakes, how is it that Peter is able to be so bold, so courageous? Well, look closely at verse 8. What does it say? It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, And so Peter's courage and boldness, it did not come solely from his own strength. It came from God, the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you just to hold on to that right now, because we're going to come back to that at the end. But for now, let me just say this. If you are a Christian living in 21st century Los Angeles, there is no circumstance in which you would speak the words of the gospel in our time and place that could actually put you more at risk that could actually be more terrifying than what Peter and John are facing in that moment. And so if Peter and John can do it there and then, then surely you and I can do it here and now. So that's the name. But let's look at the claim, point to you the claim. And notice that the claim that Peter makes has both a specificity and an exclusivity. It's both specific and exclusive. Uh, The specifics of the gospel, according to Peter, in this passage are these. I'll just list them out point by point. Number one, it is about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There's a specificity of person, there is no other name, there is no other person. Only Jesus Christ. Secondly, Jesus was crucified, and so he was killed and buried. Thirdly, he says that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And then fourthly, it's, it is belief in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins that brings a person's salvation. That's the specificity. It's about Jesus who was crucified, who was raised, and only belief and trust in his name brings the forgiveness of sins. So that's the list. But of course, the gospel isn't just a list of a few things to mentally assent to. The gospel at its core is good news for you and me. So much so, actually, it's great news for anybody who has rejected Christ. Because remember who Peter is speaking to. These are the very same men who rejected Jesus, who had him shamefully stripped naked and beaten. And in order to mock his claim to be the Messiah, they actually twisted together a crown of thorns and they pressed it into his head and they crucified him. This is who Peter is sharing this news with. And yet Peter proclaims this message to these men as good news. That is the Christian gospel. It is good news for all who have re- rejected Christ, even the ones who sent him to his death. That's the good news. And now that's the specificity, but look also at the exclusivity in verse 12. Remember again, it says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, that's a radical statement to make in 21st century Los Angeles. It is. It's a radical statement to say there is only one way to salvation, only one way to God. We don't make such exclusive claims today. For the most part, people are okay with saying that Jesus is a way that he's one way, but not the only way. We're actually as a culture moving closer and closer to saying that every other way but Jesus, every other way but Christianity is acceptable. That's actually the direction we're headed as a culture. We're almost at that point where it's like, any other way is fine, but if you're a Christian, no, 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 that doesn't work. And so it's a radical statement to say that Jesus is the only way. But let's not forget that this was just as radical for Peter to say in the first century as it is for us to say today. Remember who he's standing in front of. He's saying this to the Jewish elite, the the Jewish ruling class, the, the religious leaders, the scholars. And not one of them believed Jesus Christ of Nazareth was the Messiah. Not one of them believed he was the Christ. Not one of them believed he was the only way to salvation. This is the group that sentenced Jesus to death just a few months before for claiming that very same thing. And that's who Peter is saying this to. But also, as you read on in the book of Acts, you see that this claim is is also radical in the entire Greco-Roman world. That everywhere they go, they make this claim about They make that claim about Jesus in Asia. They make that claim about Jesus in Europe. They make that claim about him in Africa. Everywhere this message goes, it is radically exclusive and it is rejected. But if it's so rejected... If a statement like this, that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the only way to salvation, that Jesus Christ alone is God and that salvation is by no other name, if that statement is so controversial, it leaves us with a really, really important historical question. And here's the question we have to ask. If it is so controversial, so exclusive, then why did so many people believe it? Why does Peter believe it? And not only believe it, but why does he risk the same fate as Jesus of being crucified? There's there's really only three options. And one is that he's crazy. Peter's, Peter's nuts. He's delusional. That's one option. A person could and would never make a claim like that unless they were crazy, right? The problem is, Peter's not the only one making the claim. We saw back in chapter 1, uh, first, that there were 120 others who were making this claim. Then it was 3,000 by the end of chapter 2. And now, I don't know if you saw this, noticed it, but in verse 4 of chapter 4, it said that there were 5,000 men. And the implication there is that that number doesn't include women and children. And so we're looking at somewhere probably closer to 10 to 15,000 who have believed the message. And are all of them crazy? Are all of them delusional? Well, that's one option. Number two is that it's a lie, that Peter's lying. But it can't be a lie. It can't be. Because all of this, this whole trial, everything came about because of an actual healing. They actually healed this lame man who was 40 years old now and lived his whole life not being able to walk. And now he's standing and jumping, it says. And there were hundreds of witnesses to this, including the rulers and the scholars and the elders. So it can't be a lie. So thirdly then, there's only one other option. And the other option is, it's true. That's the only other option. Now in reality, when Peter says that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the only way, he's actually quoting Jesus who said in John 14, remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I quoted C.S. Lewis last week when we talked about miracles and I have to quote him again this week uh, as we talk about the exclusivity of Jesus uh, because Lewis probably gets this better than anybody and here's what he has to say on the topic. He says, am I trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him? I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. A man who went around claiming to be God, he either is or he's not. There's no middle ground. And so we're left with only two options. Either you have to write Jesus and the apostles off entirely, or you have to accept the gospel as truth. There is no middle way. You can't only accept the moral teachings of Jesus. Because if he is if crazy, you can't accept the moral teachings of the apostles because if they're crazy or liars, that undermines the whole thing. And so what will you do with Jesus? Will you accept him or will you reject him? Because there's no middle ground. It's one or the other. And I want to say this specifically to anyone who's here and is is not a Christian. I, I want to ask you, would you at least consider it? And the only way to really do that, I think, with any integrity is to read it for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Don't take somebody else's word for it. Read it yourself. Before you write Jesus off for good, would you... Read the first-hand accounts of the life of him. There's copies of those in the backs of the seats in front of you. There's uh, little white and blue New Testaments in in nearly every row. And if you want to consider the claim that Jesus Christ is the only name under heaven by which a person can be saved, then take one of those um, and read it for yourself. Examine it for yourself. Now, there's one last point we have to make. Um, because it, we need a third one for it to rhyme. And so you have the name, the claim, and the fame. Uh, and it's the fame, thirdly, because somehow, in spite of... The, this is amazing. In spite of the significant threat to the lives of Peter and John, at the end of the chapter, uh, it also includes all the other believers. There's a significant threat, threat to all of them. In spite of the threat to their lives, they are still committed to spreading the fame of the name of Jesus far and wide. Because look what happens. After Peter stands up to them and proclaims the gospel to them, to these, these incredibly authoritative people, they're shocked. They are shocked at Peter and John's courage and boldness. And notice in verse 13, the only explanation that they can come up with is that these guys clearly spent time with Jesus. That's the only explanation they can come up with. And so they don't know what to do with it. So they, they sort of send them away and they confer together. And here's what they come up with in verse 17. Here's their grand plan. Verse 17, but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Verse 18, then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, here's what's really striking about this. They didn't command them to not go and heal. Like that's what they were brought in for, it's healing. They didn't command them to, to not go and heal more people. Which means the threat to their authority was not the healing, it was the speaking. Speaking is what they were commanded not to do. But what does Peter say, verse 19? <laughs> to this incredibly authoritative group, he goes, Well, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judge. As for us, listen to this. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. The authorities say don't speak. Peter says we can't help but speak. You know, you can always tell something that's important to someone by asking them to stop doing it. If they tell you, no, I'm going to keep doing it, then you know that thing's important to them. And this is why I said earlier that the only way to really be authentically Christian is to speak about Jesus. In the face of tremendous opposition, the extraordinary threat of life and limb, the very first Christians are told to stop speaking about Jesus. And their response to the most authoritative body in the land was, no. That is true authenticity if I've ever seen it. And so to the non-Christians in the room, I told you I wanted to try and show you why it's authentic to, be, to share about Jesus if you're a Christian. If your friend has been telling you about Jesus, if they invited you here, don't count that against them. That is them being as authentic of a Christian as they possibly can be. And it is actually in the mind of a Christian the most loving thing that a Christian can do. Because a Christian genuinely believes that salvation is by no other name but by Jesus. The only way we can be renewed, the only way we can be forgiven fully and completely is in Jesus Christ. And so we want you to experience that. That's why Christians share the gospel. Now, to the Christians in the room, the only thing I can really tell you is go and share. There is nothing more authentic to your faith as a Christian than to share the gospel. And we actually, we still we live in a time and a place where you can do that freely. I mean, do you know that the, the apostles, the early Christians, they would marvel at the freedom that we have to share the gospel? They would marvel at the access that we have to the nations. You can ju- jump on a flying bird and be across the world to share the gospel in a few hours. They would marvel at that. They would marvel at the fact that we have communication tools at our fingertips, in our back pocket, that we can speak to the entire world all at the same time. This is the best time in history to be a person with good news to share. No other point in history have we been able to communicate so freely, so openly, so broadly. And so to the Christians in the room, go and share. Share. Speak the gospel. Now, let me just wrap up with this, because remember we said earlier that it was the Holy Spirit who gave Peter and John the courage and boldness. Remember I said that earlier, we'd come back to it. You know, it'd be easy to assume that because this was such an extraordinary event, that this sort of empowerment, this sort of courage, this sort of boldness was only for special people in extraordinary circumstances. And you could believe that if we only had verse 8. Because in verse 8, it says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. But look at verse 31. Look how it ends. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Did you see that? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And all is implied, by the way, when it says spoke the word of God boldly. And so that's for everyone. Everyone. There is not a Christian in the room who cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to speak the gospel boldly. Now, how does that happen? How do they all become filled with the Holy Spirit and all speak boldly? Is this some sort of mystical thing that happens in a room that nobody knows about? Well, look what it says. Verse 23, Peter and John, after they're released, they go back to the other Christians. And verse 24, what does it say? When they, these other Christians, when they heard this... They raise their voices together in prayer to God. And so first they prayed together. That's number one. Secondly, though, notice what they pray. Verses 24 and 25. Look at what they pray. They pray scripture. This is a quote from Psalm 2. And so they pray together. They pray scripture together. And then thirdly, look specifically at what they ask for. Now, if it was me, and I was praying this, I'd be like, Dear God. Please let me not be put on trial and have my life be at risk again. That would be my prayer. And in fact, based on, you know, is, is, are they, do they want to be free from that. And based on verse 27 and 28 and the start of verse 29, they actually expect to be plotted against. They expect to be threatened, to be persecuted. But what do they specifically ask God for? Verse 29, God, enable your servants to what? What does it say? Speak your word with great boldness. That's their prayer. Not to be free from persecution, not to be free from trial, not to be free from being mocked, but that God would enable them to speak with great boldness. Now they also want to do good works, verse 30. But remember the primary theme of this passage actually has to do with speaking. And so the thing they ask God for is to be enabled to speak boldly And that is a prayer that God delights to answer. We pray all these prayers all the time. We hope that God will answer them. Here's a prayer that I guarantee if you pray, God is going to answer it. He delights to answer this prayer. This is as we've been learning what the Holy Spirit has been doing for all of eternity. Speaking about Jesus. And so when we do that, when we ask God to help us to do that, of course he delights to answer it. So verse 31, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So how do you get to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, there's a pattern that emerges. It starts with unified prayer, praying scripture together in community, which leads to being filled with the Holy Spirit, which leads to bold speaking. It's right there, right there in the text. There's no secret mystical room. It's not magic. And here's what we've been saying, that the only way the church spreads... Is through the gospel being spoken with courage and boldness to those who are not Christians. That's the way it spreads. That's the only way the church spreads, is when the gospel message is verbalized. And so here's what I want to say to us if you feel a timidness, a shyness, a fear to speak the gospel to your friends, to your colleagues, to your neighbors, to family members, we have revealed to us here a pattern of being able to speak boldly and it's laid out clearly. It's unified prayer. Being filled with the Holy Spirit and then speaking boldly. Now you may not know this, but we're a church that actually follows this pattern all the time. Because every single Sunday morning at 9.30 there's a prayer meeting where we literally pray just like they do in this passage. I mean, the, the model is exactly the same. We come together in unity as a group, we pray scripture, we actually pray the Psalms, and then we ask God to enable our church to speak the gospel with great boldness. We do that every Sunday at 9.30. And I genuinely believe that the more we do that, the more people who join us in doing that, the more we will see the church spread across Los Angeles, and hopefully beyond that. The gospel only spreads if we talk about it. And that's what we see here. And so let's be that kind of church. And to that end, let's pray this prayer from Acts chapter 4 as we close. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus.